KOW. Olga Dima, next year Stuttgart will be 20 years old, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we are old. <laughs> we can hardly believe. <laughs> And at the time you two were part of nine people who founded Stuttgart. Mm -hmm. And those people were artists, you Olga, you're a filmmaker, Dima, you do all kind of things. <laughs> yeah, that moment more photography. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then there were philosophers, mm. authors, mm -hmm. choreographers. How did you come to the idea to bring these people together from different disciplines to a collective practice? And what was actually the collective practice at the beginning? Mm. If I can start, actually it's quite famous story that it was 2003 and it was that notorious celebration of 300 years of St. Petersburg. And then it was all of a sudden, because in 90s, the cultural field in Russia was absolutely kind of out of politics. So it was more kind of libertarian general spirit. But this moment, someone felt that something went really wrong and actually it was in the air already that kind of conservative turn and it actually was one of the first maybe Putin speech when he openly declared what kind of Russia he imagined mm -hmm. and at the same time because actually in Petersburg we all have that kind of strong local identity so Our city was actually very much have culture, cultural value. And of course, our vision of Petersburg and its universe was very different from what Putin or city authorities could offer, just opposite. So we feel completely kind of silenced, excluded from that kind of discussion, what kind of culture we need. There was absolutely kind of noise presence of avant-garde ideas, of many cultural phenomena which was important for us. And also it was enormous police operation, so actually it was done even not for citizens, but for just invited guests. So it was actually kind of G8 style, so presidents came, everyone was in the city, city was... Um, fenced and you can hardly move from one borough to another so and then all of a sudden the group of some of them were friends some of them were kind of new voices we decided that we need to protest mm -hmm. so and show our vision and we published manifesto of that kind of group which actually suggested Uh, claim another vision and then make manifestations and we were arrested and then after this event we decided how to continue and then like in many mobilization a lot of people was dropping out it was already regular life return to normality but then our group was formed out of this situation and we decided to continue And for this kind of collaboration, I would say that first five years, maybe newspaper was the most important platform. Mm -hmm. Of course, parallel, we did some action, some even quite mm -hmm. famous films, but at the same time, it was newspaper in the spirit of Lenin, mm -hmm. what is to be done, become collective organizer. And this was actually... Mm -hmm. I was going to point of departure. Yeah, it was kind of, you know, this newspaper is very good point of departure because it, we made it collectively. And uh, But I should say that we started our group with our old friends, you know, and it means that we consider our group not like a professional group, but we consider our group as a family. It was from the very beginning, you know. We spent a lot of time together, you know, that's like... Uh, Our kids are good friends, you know, that's like this. And maybe this is why we, we are now 20 years old already. Mm -hmm. 
No, we can continue. And, and the, the newspaper came out of the need for discourse or the need to articulate yourself in the moment where you're, in, you're not invited to have a voice wheresoever? Yeah, right. Yeah, it was necessity to articulate, but at the same time, you need also to reflect that it was the days when we reconsider ourselves in kind of broad coalition of new left. Because actually, right now, maybe young generation don't remember, but beginning of 2000, that was quite interesting time. Tony Negri published Empire, the movement of social forums appears, the influence of Zapatista was very present. So actually, it was the time when Subcommandante Marcus was translated into Russian. And actually, in that kind of political situation, some kind of people inside Russian intelligentsia start to be involved more in political and social movement and consider possibilities of new kind of leftist politics actually in dialogue with international scene. That was also very important that we were trying to overcome that kind of Russian provincialization and marginalization, which actually Putin's idea about conservative turn was about. So, yeah, and this was actually a chance for us to participate in that kind of international debate with our local voice and our local, so to say, cultural genealogy which was actually very important, and also be kind of translator, but not just we translating Western or whatever international theory into Russian, but also translating our situation into more kind of international context. So that was, yeah, very important work for us. But Olga, you, you mentioned your family, not everybody in the family was writer or was at home in language practice discourse <laughs> practice. So uh, what, what role did art play, whether in the newspapers or next to the newspapers, or, or was it more like a milieu, like more the art world as a platform to get organized? No, in St. Petersburg we have this very long tradition that visual art is always connected with poetry. That's like, you know, that's... Mm. Uh, because it's St. Petersburg, you know, and uh, for all of us, the main heroes was, you know, Abiru, this group, uh, Dada, Russian, uh, Russian absurdism. Dada, uh, absurdism or mm -hmm. something like this. And uh, that's kind of our root, mm -hmm. you know, for all of us, for poets, for writers, for visual art as well. So it was from the beginning of our group that language, text was very important for us. And then, of course, we started with newspaper when they were very important, but we, when we start, then we continue with our songspiels. Yes. Yeah. So the songspiele, song plays, became a whole series of films. And you mentioned poetry. Poetry, yes. And uh, of course, we had the privilege to do this poetry of the film together with, not with all members of our group, but with Alexander Skidan, for example. For example, he is a pretty famous poet in Russia. With Artemy Magun, he is a philosopher. With Oksana, you know, and we were doing our text together. You know, We started to do it. We made the whole scenario, but then they continue and, you know, to read it and to, to change the text. And so we created text kind of together. If it is, now I'm thinking how it was possible, but it was possible. And you addressed pretty critical issues in the song place, also regarding mm -hmm. Putin's Russia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. No, I mean, it was kind of social musical, actually pretty much inspired by Brecht tradition. Maybe you can say a bit more about that, the Brechtian tradition, because I think specifically for you it's quite important. You, mm -hmm. you know, actually, from the very beginning we didn't care much how true Brechtian we are and what means really be real Brechtian. But at the same time we use kind of basic devices like estrangement, alienation effect, 
and then also that construction of typical characters so we created characters so that was a period where it was not real kind of people it was somehow invented no it was kind of puppet puppet theater no all characters were not real but kind of constructed kind of mask Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, what is important because it was constructed as, as a ancient uh, tragedy, we had a choir, and we had the heroes who were acting, who were doing their mistakes, and the choir was commenting what are they doing, and the choir always have the position from outside, you know, because for example, our first zongspiel was dedicated to Perestroika, and the choir was commenting Perestroika time from the time when we were made it. It was a kind of... From the future. From, some, from the future, mm-hmm. you know. They know what happened after. Mm-hmm. And then we made another Zongspiel. I mean, it's always... Uh, the position of choir was always from different time, from the future, from the past. And so the idea of that Zongspiel was to construct the model of the real situation. Because in Russia, the authorities and the power, power of authorities usually uh, looks like the nature, you know. And this is why, because nobody understands how, how it, uh, it is functioning, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you don't understand, you cannot fight against, you know, because how you can fight is the nature. And our idea was to make it a little bit clear, you know, to, to, to show, to take the real situation, then to understand, together with all of the collective, you know, with all of our philosophers and thinkers, to understand what is the situation, to, to create a model of the situation mm-hmm. and then to make it visible for everybody. And from the beginning we had an idea that our Zongspiel has to be as open as possible. And this is why we created this language, which is absolutely, you know, uh, understandable for everybody. This is why we use this music, songs, dance, and you know, that's... Mm. And I guess that it was pretty political, you know. Indeed. <laughs> no, I mean, not only like uh, we wanted to be political, but we created kind of language which is which was open for everybody. Did you ever get problems in Russia with the song players? Like the topics that you addressed? Mm. You know, the main problem is that it was not shown. No one wanted to show it. <laughs> that was the problem. Second, actually, in 2008, they arrested our newspaper when there was a war with Georgia. And we printed in one printing house. It was already, you know, we have no illusion since the very beginning. But at the same time, it didn't run into kind of big, big troubles. So they confiscated newspaper with Perestroika musical actually text, and FSB really wanted to know what that, but at the same time, it was for them maybe too complicated. But at the same time, you know, the main problem, because people talk about censorship, but you know, a lot of situation when government doesn't come to that kind of situation, they simply not show it, not invite, you know, to censor, you need first <laughs> to be involved. And, you know, because we were from St. Petersburg, and also we was really kind of excluded from Russian public sphere. That actually the first protest was very much about it, and actually also marginalized. Also, we were kind of marginalized because I talk about the turn to that leftist politics, but at the same time, it was still completely unacceptable, even for Russian liberal uh, opposition, so to say. So that actually made kind of watershed between us and kind of oppositional public sphere, because it's hard to explain, but... At the same time, maybe we also survived and feel kind of relatively safe because liberal opposition was on front line. But at the same time, we have strong disagreement for many issues like 
They imagine that U.S. paradise was NATO occupying Russia. That was their highest dream, you know, <laughs> that actually right now played in this <laughs> war. No, they did actually hide. So they openly say that we need U.S. more kind of intervention to normalize crazy Russian politics. So it was already set in 2003 and 2004. And with these guys, we have very little to do. And they also stay for privatization. Whole Soviet history was really like gulag, one black paint, you know. And we say, come on, guys, you know, it was very... Of course, we are not Stalinist. We also criticize heavily that kind of period. But at the same time, you should also understand what we can rescue, potentialities of that Soviet period. And that was also that the voice was not really needed in that kind of construction of public sphere. And so, did you have conflicts within your collective about these issues? Inside collective? Mm -hmm. No, inside we have quite typical leftist collective to simplify it, so some more kind of anarchist trend, mm -hmm. Deleuzean one, other were into kind of Zizek trend, more kind of state control and socialism, so reconsideration of the... Trotskyists. Trotskyists, yeah, that kind of some, stuff. Yeah, mm. some of our uh, members in their young years are real Trotskyists. No, actually, young. you know, that marginal organization with 10, 20 people who actually was kind of comrades, actually Trotsky's influence was quite strong. With Force International, on the other hand, I belong maybe to more that anarchist tradition, so that kind of ideological disputes was inside. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, it's marginal <laughs> for society in general. I remember sometimes I, I asked you, is the situation dangerous for you? And you said, ach, you know, we're so marginal, uh, yeah. <laughs> nobody is interested in what we're doing. And now, if we jumped in time, you weren't exactly right with that self-perception, I guess, because just some weeks ago, suddenly you had the secret service in your house at six o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, they confiscated your computers, your data, and very quickly you had to take the car and drive over the border to Finland and then to Sweden, and that's how you came to Germany, where you now live as refugees from Russia. Uh, what has changed that for all the years, apparently they have observed you over years, that you know now, what has changed that for a long time they didn't touch you, but then they actually did? Mm, no, the answer is very easy, because actually, Mm, then, again, to simplify the picture, you know, it was four years of Medvedev president, where, which created a lot of hope for liberalization. Then it was Olympic Games in Sochi, you know, and then everyone hoped that it will be a kind of more liberal kind of development of politics. But then this kind of winter protest 2011, 2012, was repressed and actually now for 10 years we have almost every month new repressive laws from LGBTQ plus to whatever. So of course they were more concerned about the more visible kind of parts so how to limit it and Jews, big NGOs like civil rights and journalism to criminalize media. So culture was maybe um, at the bottom of that list. Mm -hmm. But in 10 years, finally, they make something with culture too. Mm -hmm. Actually, it was many quite wise voices which told guys, just be careful because it comes with time. So, and it came. Mm -hmm. So, and actually, I guess we were super lucky that we managed to continue our work for quite long. So, but then with escalation of the war in February, you know, they immediately in March implemented new laws which criminalized almost everything. Mm. So you can't say anything about the war, you can't uh, do any kind of public statements or actions. So actually, you know, it was already 
that's why it was very difficult to say how it would be possible to do it otherwise because actually of course you know the structures of civil society was broken already for 10 years it didn't function so there was also no real opposition the figures were in exile or poisoned like Navalny or put into jail yeah it was already yeah. kind of severe so we were failure. already prepared you know we know we knew that they they will come to us mm-hmm. so we expected some not, not every day but of course we will soon or later so yeah but uh but we know how they usually do they have kind of rule first they come and uh, no with uh with a raid usually and uh, pretty aggressive and uh, the idea is to push people from the country mm-hmm. if they don't understand mm-hmm. what they want from them they uh, come next time and uh, they arrest that's what you usually do and this is why we were waiting for this first step mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the first of september they came and they told us that to the question from the police from our investigator they asked is it the first raid in your life we said yes and he said, oh, it will be the good tradition for you. We will visit you pretty often. And we decided we don't want to have such tradition. And this is why she decided to escape. How do you feel about Russian language now? I mean, now you live in another country. Russian is your mother tongue. It's the culture where you come from. Mm, you know, like all languages and especially you belong in it's shaped by languages of course you can speak many languages but at the same time we have mother tongue luckily there are some people who have few mother tongues <laughs> that it's very interesting situation but at the same time when you have mother tongue and you grow up in very kind of specific tradition or histories cultural tradition first of all and for us of course it's russian kind of tradition but at the same time the problem that right now that people try to generalize like all russian tradition it's imperialist colonial blah 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 which actually we could translate into many situations spanish tradition also colonial uk incredibly colonial dutch tradition yeah german partly you know nazi history but in all that cultures and all that languages there are many other traditions so it's not homogeneous so it's voices of resistance voices of um liberation so yeah and we actually trying to relate to this kind of tradition inside our culture which is super rich that's why actually i'm still very proud to belong to that tradition which actually give the world the chance to uh, imagine different world, different politics, and so on. So, and actually, I would say it's a big privilege because actually, compared to many kind of smaller, maybe unknown cultural tradition, you feel that you don't need to speak much because you understand. Aha, this Russian avant-garde, or not Russian Soviet avant-garde, mm. or this is Soviet linguistic, or as Olga mentioned radical absurdism tradition or soviet films you know many things which actually help you people immediately recognize because it becomes became common so it's internationally recognized so that's why i would say we work with this kind of privilege and kind of cultural capital of people who did it before us and i hope that actually right now looks like that through 20 years of our activity right now many people outside russia can understand the process which has happened in russia in petersburg through our works so it become kind of shared become mm-hmm. common mm-hmm. so okay ah we know about perestroika why <laughs> because of the work of Stodelik. Aha, we know about Gazprom politics. Why? Because we saw this film. Mm-hmm. We know about so six. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> no, no. I mean, we heard about six of May in Russia. What is six of May? Yeah, it's a time when Russian opposition was clashed with police, and after that repression starts. So that we actually hope that the whole um, history of this twenty years, and that actually, I would say, looking back, it was actually was done consciously. It's not just we just happened by chance that we mentioned it. No, you actually wanted to create artwork as historical documents. Mm -hmm. And we should say that you built an international career. So you said you could not show your work in Russia most of the time, but you showed it in many places all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the films did actually have international publics. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But Olga, coming coming back to the question of yeah, the I, Russian I mother tongue, feel so un, 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 unsteady without my language, without my Russian language. So I'm um, confident. But you know, but maybe for me, it's a good place to start to do art town. Maybe this condition of um, when I don't have any stability, maybe it's the best place to start to do new type of art. No, I mean, because of course we have this privilege because art sometimes doesn't need any words at all. And uh, we can be understandable. But of course uh, now when uh, we are outside of Russia, but Russia continues this war. What kind of language we have to create? I mean, our own language. How? Because we we still represent our motherland. But in what? Uh, I try to explain with not my <laughs> native language. <laughs> yeah, but if we will find a way how to represent our weakness. Our, uh, I don't know how to explain it because it's for me it's something very very new, and I'm just thinking about new language and uh, I maybe it can grow up from this position. That's what I think. But you know, actually, Russia have very interesting history because actually it has very fresh history of national state. Russia was never a national state. It was empire, then it was part of Soviet Union, and even inside Soviet Union, so-called Russian Federation as kind of a republic, one of 15 republic, was actually in a very special position where many um, other nations inside Soviet Union or Russian empire, which was obviously under that kind of colonial pressure. But at the same time, because as I told before, we belong to that kind of anti-colonial or decolonial tradition of Russian liberation, because Lenin, what Lenin said about Russian Empire, he said Russian Empire is a presence of the nation. So if you continue Lenin's politics, you don't need to become all of a sudden like many people awaken and say, oh, we need decolonial thinking. Come on, guys, we grew up with the decolonial or anti-colonial thinking inside Russian tradition. Mm -hmm. At the same time, for many kind of anti-colonial struggle in Russian periphery, they need to claim their national identity like Ukrainians or we Ukrainians. In Russia, we never say we Russians, that's why we are decolonial. No, we absolutely rejection of that kind of state or national belonging. That was quite interesting that actually Armenians become more Armenian than it used to be to resist or Azerbaijanians or Chechenians, you know. Russia was opposite. We never used national costumes because for us it looks ridiculous. You know, mm. I still see that kind of, for me, it's kind of old, kind of conservative crap. How you can use that or Cossack songs, you know, all of that for Russians, absolutely impossible. Only conservatives will use it in Russia. But if you out of that conservative kind of trend, you will never use national card in Russia. So you would say the new Russian nationalism that we see today mm -hmm. is not 
shared by so many people in the country? But you know, but again, here it's another complication level. I would say that actually what is uh, very problematic with Putin kind of, I wouldn't even call it nationalism. The problem is that it's imperialism. You know, that actually also right now we have some trouble in news that actually the most soldiers who are recruited to the war, they're ethnically not Russian. They're Chechenians, Buryat, Dagestan, so, and then actually have most severe numbers of victims. So I'd also create why this more poorest areas in Russia actually right now fighting against Ukraine and go like, you know, Before that uh, recruitment or mobilization, it was actually volunteers that people really signed contracts to fight, you know, and they come from these areas. So I guess that Putin is right now, there are certain kind of speculation in public. And of course, there is certain kind of radical Russian nationalism. But at the same time, it's minor trend. In general, it's kind of Russian imperialism which actually right now trying to challenge the West, also embrace Ukraine as a part of new empire or old empire, which actually for them it's a trauma that whole empire can't survive without Ukraine. But it's long because from beginning of the 90s. So actually withdrawing of Ukraine from Soviet Union was a kind of last nail, you know, in the coffin of Russian empire. So Russia without Ukraine is not empire. So that's why I wouldn't say it's so simple nationalistic, you know. It's unfortunately or fortunately, <laughs> it's the same shit actually. <laughs> But at the same time, you can't understand real situation if you consider it in that kind of nationalistic terms. That's why actually the fight for Ukrainians for liberation, it's national liberation. But to Russian aggression, it's imperialist. Or colonial, even, you know. Maybe through colonialism you can also better understand it. Yeah, so it's a very complicated topic. Yeah, it looks like when we are losing our language, we are fighting against empire, you know, it's kind of... <laughs> no, that's... I, I, I know that it sounds pretty ridiculous, but in fact, it's uh, when you're artist, you are artist, such ideas comes to your mind, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and you you did, you were describing how you feel connected to Russian cultural, intellectual mm -hmm. traditions. And yesterday evening you told me <clears throat> you always said you're Russian artist, but now you may rather say you're artist from Russia. Mm -hmm. I never use Russian artist. Actually, for me, it's also sounds like I was using nonsense. Yeah. No, why not? no, I mean. You actually, you know, I think especially in English, Russian means more kind of ethnic belonging, you know, and from it means location. You can be Buryat artist or Jewish, whoever. So it's really where you grow up in certain kind of cultural environment with a certain kind of histories. And then people understand, aha, these people from Uganda. Okay, I know Uganda, maybe. I'm from Indonesia. Okay, I know massacre of communism. So I immediately understand a little bit. Sukarta fall 89. So you got to know a little bit. But you have no idea what kind of tribe from Indonesia or from Uganda, what is ethnical belonging. It's another step. So if you have complified that situation, yeah. So then from, yes, and then even no from country, but even from location, from artist, from artist group based in St. Petersburg. We never use any kind of Russian blah, blah, blah. No, you're, you're, uh, yeah, I understand what you mean, but for me it's so important this, when I said that I'm Russian artist, it means that I belong to that culture. Mm -hmm. Not like located mm -hmm. inside of this culture, but it belongs to that culture. What do you feel can you connect with now? I mean, mm -hmm. Culturally, socially, ah. when you have to reorganize yourself from abroad as, as, as people, but also as artists. You know, 
Paradoxically, you know, we've been always kind of skeptical about, not skeptical, because in Russia it also was first line of the division came in that civil war where red fighted white guards, you know, and actually it was one of the most tragic period of Russian history. And then after the victory of Bolsheviks and Soviet Russia, millions of people left Soviet Union, or it was even before Soviet And these people were dislocated to Istanbul, to Belgrade, to Paris, to Berlin, to New York, to Argentina, everywhere. And they created kind of a culture in exile, which was absolutely separate. In Soviet Union, it was completely banned, so you could get prison term or reading some books like Nabokov or something else. And of course, it was also not homogeneous. A lot of that kind of white guards was actually beginning, was standing at that kind of, at origins of fascism, you know, and like Putin's most favorite philosopher, Lenin, who was actually based in Berlin, was open kind of support of fascism, or Merishkovsky, or many other. But at the same time, it was in other voices, like Viktor Serge or Trotsky was in, immigration. So, and right now, I guess we almost reach that kind of scale of immigration from Russia. Mm -hmm. Again, super diverse people, sometimes completely apolitical, like IT specialists who never give a shit if it's Putin or Erdogan or Saudi Arabia, whoever paid for new up, it's fine. But at the same time, a lot of people with quite different but quite distinctive political voices. And I guess also very interesting that what you feel from the very beginning when you lost that possibility to commute to your home, because sometimes people didn't live in Russia, but at the same time they visit it for work, or like we also commuting mm -hmm. two weeks a month before mm -hmm. COVID, let's say. But this impossibility and actually radical change of Russian time opens fascist kind of type of society. That creates completely kind of new situation and immediate understanding without words with other refugees. So once we have in Berlin birthday party of our Iranian host we left with our best friend, Iranian curator. And at the party there was people from Lebanon, from Egypt, from Iran. And in this situation, you don't have to say much. They ask, oh, oh you left right? Yeah, we understand. Oh, you have right now a problem with that? Yeah, we understand. We all have that problem. Mm -hmm. You have to move from one contract to another. Yeah, that's how life, it's normality. So welcome to the club. And that actually absolutely kind of different kind of situation with people who have more kind of Western, so say, okay, I'm French artist, it doesn't mean that I speak French, but it means that I always have French Institute or other, or I'm Dutch. Okay, Mondrian Foundation, you know, we always have a problem. For example, curators often say us before this, okay, guys, we love your works. We would like to invite you to Biennale, but who pay for you? We know that you have quite a position of work that Russian government, some of them were absolutely naive. They applied to Russian consulate or botschaft and embassy. Oh, we have Russian artists here. We always say, okay, try it. They didn't believe us. They say, look, we invited you. It's highest position, you know. You'll definitely get supported by your country. But we say, okay, try it. Of course, always was no. They simply Google us and say, no, we don't support them. That's why international curators say, guys, nice, we love your work, but who pay for you? Because if we invite Swiss artists or even US artists or Swedish artists, dream, Norwegian, wow, it brings plenty of money. When you're invited, no one pays. So we have to pay for you, but we don't have money. <laughs> you know, that was also that kind of identification of many refugees who actually don't have a full status, who really understand what does it mean not have any kind of solid support of yeah. your 
based on your nationality because it's still and during COVID it becomes completely extreme where emergency help happened to be. I remember I was once in <laughs> Vienna, it was meeting one Austrian artist and one French artist. And they discussed it was May 2020. Oh no. Yeah. May 2020. Mm-hmm. And they discussed what kind of benefits they got from the government during COVID. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't pay my atelier for 12 months. So I saved 10,000 euros. No problem. Oh, I got additional support, you know, once 5,000, another 5,000. I don't pay taxes, so I survived that COVID. And you stay like person from Russia who get fucking nothing. <laughs> How you can compete with this kind of machines? Yeah, it's so super difficult. That's why you have to grow up in completely very tough situation. Mm-hmm. Anyway. I want to change the topic because I know that education has been a very important part of your work. You founded or co-founded Rosa's School of Art in Petersburg. Uh, you were running an alternative educational program, I think one could say. Mm. Mm. School of Engaged Art and Social Center. Social c- yeah. Center with the name Rosa, Rosa, Rosa Social Center. House of, House of Culture. Culture. House of Culture. Yeah, so many <laughs> definitions. Again, I want to come back to, to language. In the way you approach education as artists and as intellectuals, on the one hand, I know you, it was also a discourse place. I was once invited to give it a lecture, mm-hmm. a debate, etc. But you were also working creatively together, doing work together. Can you describe that a little bit? What the spirit within your school has been until very recently when you had to leave now? Yeah, it's difficult <laughs> spirit. So, I mean, then again, you need to really make very complex picture simple. It's hard to believe that there are no education in field of contemporary art in Western sense in Russia. Well, I mean Western sense. So it's kind of certain canons. First of all, modernism, then critique, and then kind of institutional framework, which helps this kind of uh, tradition. So I would say it's quite heavy tradition base, you know. Modernism and critique. So there are no high education in art, in Bologna system or whatever, which educate contemporary artists in this tradition. Of course, there are some kind of craft educational initiative, even academy, where you can paint like 19th century style or in impressionism style or in Fauvist style, which is already at the edge of possibilities, acceptance, because it's a little bit too radical. <laughs> yeah. So... And then it's quite big country. It's quite modern country. And many people would like to make contemporary art in a sense, mm-hmm. as we understand, critique and modernism. <laughs> and then from dissident time to now on, this role of artistic education in contemporary sense substituted or implemented by that so-called artist peer-to-peer education. In confidential circles, that was exactly how school was about. So artists of older generation share their experience to younger generation. Super simple. That was the spirit. And also the spirit, because actually, you know, uh, very important things which I'm trying permanently to convey that actually, you know, I grew up in Soviet Union and started to make art when it was absolutely prohibited. So it was unofficial art, dissident art, underground art, whatever. So somehow it was imprinted in my subjectivity that making contemporary art, it's a legal activity. Mm-hmm. It's something which absolutely, it's your own desire, your own destiny, some kind of high things, because the society and government not support you, but repress you. Mm-hmm. Of course, later we start to travel, to come to the West, where I understood, no, it's not repressed, it's opposite, you know, it's very much welcome, supported, 
have very complicated institutional relation, also corrupted and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, because we were both legs, one leg there, one leg there, we always managed to maintain that kind of inside feeling that contemporary art is something like we call stealing air. So it's something legal, you know. Mm -hmm. And that creates very special kind of subjectivity and relation to art. Of course, young generation maybe don't feel it because in 2000 appear a few institutions of Western type, but it was very few for that kind of big country, especially in Moscow. And so in our situation, we also can provide our graduates with a kind of career. So actually, it was an eternal problem of the school. You graduate people with kind of Western canon, which not really demanded inside society. Mm. So whom you create? Of course, many people was trying to imitate us, and it was possibility to develop international career. But at the same time, we created a certain kind of network of self-organization of grassroots collective who actually made that independent kind of art scene in Petersburg mostly, but not only because we have students or participants of the school from many places in Russia or from Ukraine. It was actually the beginning was many people from Ukraine, which also completely failed to develop any kind of Western type of art education. Mm -hmm. So it was also a big disaster for Ukrainian scene. Because the academy is even more conservative than the Russian one. You said Stodilat has been a family, yeah. but I think Rosa's school was also a kind of yes, new family, no? When we established our school, it was already almost 10 years ago. But our group is 12 years old, 20 years old already, mm -hmm. yeah. So when we started to do our school, we were already pretty old group. Mm -hmm. And we had a feeling that we, we know how to work together, how to do art together, how to be together. And it was the main idea that in our school we don't want to teach young generation how to do art. Our idea from the beginning was that we can share our experience how to be together. And at that time it was kind of, you know, uh, just a privilege. Because when you, are, when you have the group as we have, you feel that you are much, much stronger. Because, no, for example, when you have such uh, members like famous poets in your group, you can be a little bit confident with, with the text. Mm -hmm. Or if you have such uh, philosophers as we have, you have to be a little bit confident with, with the context. And this is why, but now, the necessity to be together is growing up Because now, when you uh, when you are alone, you cannot survive in Russia anymore, you know. Because from the beginning, it was kind of the idea how we can resist together with the society. But now it's just the idea how we can survive together in the society. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is why our school, when, when the war escalated, this February, our school just step by step were transformed into commune. And we rented a house for three, for four months, the big house in the village. And uh, that commune, our young comrades, was growing up, not the new type of art, not, not like this. They, during this commune, they, they were growing up new type of relationship based mm -hmm. on, no, maybe it sounds funny, but it's very important, based on tenderness, mm -hmm. you know, because when you have this... Uh, when you have the war, the process of uh, dishumanization, dehumanization, dehumanization is, is growing up, you know, yes. and you have to, to create something opposite. Yes. And that's really important to insist that you are here, you are a human being and you are tender. And mm -hmm. another, another task is how to transform this tenderness into something strong. Mm -hmm. And you also created a film together. Ah, yes, that's this, true. Yeah. I mean, there's more than one situation in recent works where you see this tenderness, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where you can see this also physical relationship, mm -hmm. care relationships. No? Uh, yeah. I think that's pretty much a spirit of the latest works that you have done often, sometimes without a budget, mm -hmm. right? Just as the, the commune having a practice mm -hmm. and... A camera that's running. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, 
You miss it badly, Olga, huh? Yes, I'm... Yeah. What will come next? Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's very hard to say because in that kind of turbulent and very unpredictable situation for everyone. Right now, we work actually on one project we call it School of Emergencies, which can be kind of umbrella for many kind of location where some communities can activate and do different type of educational activity and art practice and also kind of shelter, commune relations. So we'll see. We are right now, you know, after the shock of mobilization when actually it's just one month past and actually right now we're a little bit taking breaths and seeing Where people sometimes you don't know where most of people move. So some of them also keep going from Yerevan to Istanbul, from Istanbul to Georgia, from Georgia to Europe. So we really try to think what kind of new community. But at the same time, there are many initiatives which help people with quite pragmatic things to find a shelter, a bed, accommodation some basic funds for travel, so we partly also involved with it. But at the same time, we keep believing that also we need to join that kind of intellectual and artistic capacity to grasp the situation. It's very important to find the links. So, for example, for us it's quite obvious, but at the same time very um, undeveloped way of thinking how corona related to war how the two years of pandemic really create situation when the war becomes possible you know from psychological state of putin mind <laughs> who was isolated for two years to to other situation or how to war related to climate change or other way around so actually you know it's not just about to focus on one type of emergency like war, exile, and blah, 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 but to map kind of more complicated picture and find artistic language to speak about. So that could be really one of the big tasks and actually also with fossil fascism, which is quite an important term right now. It's not related just to Russia. You can check Azerbaijanian politics with also words around it, relation to West. And so that kind of investigation, but at the same time, as Olga said, that possibility of that creating very new type of relations in the form of communes and maybe co-livings and all that kind of stuff. Are you still writing? Writing? <laughs> Every day I'm writing to my book, notebook. <laughs> I mean, like a daily. Because it's important to... Now I feel that it becomes more and more important to fix it. To fix what is going on every day. Because reality is like leaking, you know, it's... It's the best way for create a shape for reality. Mm. You know? 